Good afternoon. Welcome to the LSE for today's event, uh, which is well, communicating chronic pain, which is part of the LSE's seventh Space for Thought Literary Festival, which is taking place from Monday the 23rd to Saturday the 28th of February, with the theme Foundations. My name is Elena Gonzalez Polledo, and I am a member of the Department of Methodology. I am very pleased to welcome to the LSE Deborah Patfield, Yasmin Gunaratnam, and Jill Rosen today. Yasmin is Senior Lecturer in the Sociology Department at Goldsmiths College. She has a specialist interest in narrative and stories, and writes short stories and poems, and her recent research includes a British Academy Fellowship on the Palliative Care Philosophy of Total Pain. Yasmin's latest book is called Death and the Migrants. It's published by Bloomsbury and brings together her interest in stories with her sociological research on transnational, dying, and intercultural care. Her co-edited collection, Narrative Stories in Care, was shortlisted and highly commended in the British Medical Association Book Awards of 2010. Um, I think Yasmin will speak today through some of her video work. Yes, I'll, I'll say the order later, I'm sorry. Deborah Patfield is a visual artist who specializes in lens-based media and interdisciplinary practice and research within, within fine arts and medicine. She is currently a research associate at the Slade School of Fine Art at UCL and artist in residence at the Eastman Dental Hospital. She has collaborated extensively with clinicians and patients, exploring the value of visual images in clinician-patient interactions and the communication of pain. In 2001, she collaborated with Dr. Charles Pida and staff and patients from the Input Pain Management Unit, uh, and this collaboration led to a touring exhibition and her book, Perceptions of Pain. She then collaborated with Joanna Sarkevska uh, and facial pain clinicians and patients from UCLH, and uh, this led to her current research-funded project, which is entitled Pain, Speaking the Threshold. She has exhibited widely at the National Portrait Gallery, at the Wellcome Trust, and at the Science Museum, and she has been recipient of multiple awards, including the SciArt Research Award and British Pain Society Artist of the Year 2012. And Deborah is going to talk to us through some of her image-based work. Jude Rosen is a poet, translator, and independent researcher in urban culture, policy, planning, and citizenship, and former university lecturer in politics at UCL until her retirement. Her book of poems, A Small Gateway, was published by Hearing Eye in 2009 and addressed the scars of history and displacement in shaping personal and collective identity, memory, and art. Um, I think she's going to introduce us today to her poem, Grown Heroine, which um, she developed as a kind of a musical piece with Richard Crowe, who is also in the audience. And that this is a poem that we're close to because it made it to our Communicating Chronic Pain workshops. In her current work, she's been experimenting with a walking and narrative-based poetic practice, writing from field notes and observation of resonant places and routes, gathering oral histories and scoring the voices of former workers, displaced people and inhabitants of the marshes and Olympic borderlands of East London as an act of retrieval, reclaiming the space, its people and its history. 
Um, I think the order uh, of speakers today will be, we'll start with Deborah's presentation, uh, Yasmin will go second, and then finally Jude. And for those uh, Twitter users in the audience, may I remind that the hashtag, the suggested hashtag for today's event is LSE Litfest. Uh, may I remind you to please put your mobile phones in silent for the duration of the event. And after the three presentations, we will have the chance to put questions and uh, open comments to the speakers individually or the panel. And we also have some booklets and other kinds of materials associated with this um, research for you to look at and take away later on. Without further ado, I'm showing over to Deborah. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, for Jane and Elena, for inviting me to take part in what sounds like it's actually going to be a really fascinating session. Um, can you tell me if you can't hear, because I'm sort of looking in two directions at once so that I can see, so, so tell me if you can't hear. But I'm going to be principally talking about ways in which photographs can generate language. <coughs> Pain, as most of you here will know, is common and difficult to communicate or reduce into the verbal or numerical scales so commonly used in clinical practice. And academics from Scary to Chiron have argued that pain resists description in language, while Biro and Bork have argued conversely that it generates language. So this presentation will focus on two projects. Um, one is Perceptions of Pain, which was 2001 to 2006, and one is Face to Face, which was 2008 to 13. And both of these explore ways in which the photographic images can impact on the language around pain and actually generate new language. The projects are both collaborations between fine art and medicine at two le leading London teaching hospitals. And they both sought to develop a visual language as opposed to a verbal language as an alternative vehicle for communicating and capturing pain. But contrary to our expectation, it became evident that the image's most powerful potential was not in replacing verbal language, but in regenerating it, catalyzing new descriptors for pain from sufferers' own words and highlighting the most problematic aspects of their lived experience, so facilitating increased mutual understanding <coughs> across the doctor-patient divide. So I'm going to begin by talking about the reasons that we started out on both of these projects, and then I'll give a brief overview of them describing particularly the, the method of co-creating photographic images with pain sufferers. And I'll show a selection of the images as I'm talking. And it's a technique I've developed with um, pain sufferers, not only in these two projects, but also in one-off sessions, such as in the one at LSE here on the Communicating um, Chronic Pain Project, and also in sessions that we held at the National Portrait Gallery for patients and clinicians to attend together. And there the images as well as image-making processes, were used as a stimulus for dialogue. But one of the main aims of co-creating images was not only to make pain visible, but to produce a selection of images which could be used with other pain sufferers in the clinic to improve doctor-patient uh, communication. So why is pain difficult to communicate? <coughs> and why does this difficulty matter? In her seminal work on pain... The body in pain, Scary asserts pain's unshareability is due to its resistance to verbal language. But I think in the same section, she also alludes to the fact of its invisibility. And its invisibility creates a chasm of doubt between the person in pain and the person witnessing it. 
And this was evident with many of the people I worked with. This was what was written by one of the people I worked with, first of all, in Perceptions of Pain. So she got to the point where she was eventually saying, what do you want me to do to show you I'm in pain? But I think perhaps most of all, one of the difficulties of, of it communicating it is the fact that pain is subjective. And most of the current measures are objective, usually numerically or linguistically based, such as the McGill Pain Questionnaire and rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10. And if you look at this sentiment, pain equals evil, evil equals darkness, darkness equals pain, how can you constrict that into a number from 1 to 10? And what would it mean if you could? So that leads us really to ask, what is pain? What could a useful definition for pain be? Now, the International Association for the Study of Pain has a definition which most of you will know, and it highlights pain's subjectivity, describing it as a sensory and an emotional experience which challenges the classic distinction between pain and suffering. But David Biro, in his recent excellent chapter in the book Exploring Pain and Emotion, makes no distinction between emotional and physical pain, and he argues for an expanded definition of pain. He proposes that it be expanded to include the aversive feeling of injury to one's person and the threat of further potentially more serious injury, and it can only be described metaphorically. And he argues that that would reduce the semantic confusion around pain and provide a better framework for managing patients. And I think the inclusion of the word metaphor, for me, is interesting, because I think in many ways the images that we produce together are visual metaphors for pain. But I wanted to move on to thinking, why does communication matter in the context of pain? I think, first of all, poor communication is still cited as one of the main barriers to the adequate treatment of pain. But poor communication also increases the risks of not eliciting vital information about the social and the emotional context in which a person's pain is being lived, with the result that the most appropriate treatment or referral may not be discussed. And conversely, that the patient themselves may not take away equally vital information about current understanding of pain mechanisms. Poor communication increases the isolation of those suffering from pain, and yet isolation itself is thought to increase pain intensity. And I should add that in both of these projects, I'm actually working with people with chronic pain as opposed to acute pain. And chronic pain is defined as pain that has lasted for three months and outlived its usefulness, resulting in central brain changes. It's very unlikely to lead to death, but nevertheless the experience of it for many sufferers is a catastrophic assault on the self, requiring complete re-navigation of their relationship with others and with themselves. And it's this complex phenomenon that we call chronic pain relies very largely on communication for its diagnosis, and I think it's unlikely to be resolved by technocentric medicine or by tests alone. So I'd like to give a quick overview of both of the projects that I've been working on. The first one is Perceptions of Pain, and this was in 2001, and it began as a collaboration between myself as an artist and um, Dr. Charles Pyther, who was the medical director of Input Pain Unit, with patients and staff from St. Thomas's Hospital. <coughs> and it researched whether and how photographic images of pain co-created with patients can help them communicate their pain to their treating clinicians, and whether images can expand the dialogue around pain in the consulting room to improve mutual understanding. 
And it involved working individually with patients once a week while they were on the residential pain management programme to co-create photographs which as closely as possible represented their experience of pain. And these images have since been exhibited around the UK and in London. A selection has been piloted in spiral-bound books across clinics in the UK and it also led to a book, Perceptions of Pain, which you can actually buy um, in the foyer if you want to later. But I thought before I talk about the second project, I'd just say a little bit about the co-creative process. Because I think that the fact that the images are co-created is foundational to the, to the process. In order not to reappropriate the experience of pain, as can happen so often in the long journey through the diagnostic corridors. Everyone chose to collaborate and negotiate in the image-making process in a very different way. So I thought I'd just show you a few examples of ways in which this has happened. But it literally happened differently for everyone. This was someone who um, wanted me to walk around a particular building where her pain had started when she jumped from a window. And then we um, sandwiched that with a, a, another negative of her leg. So there's a sense of her feeling really trapped and unable to, to get out of her particular situation. In fact, she talked about how it... For her, it symbolised being out of control and wanting to reverse that by coming up with an image which actually helped to feel more in control. This was with someone who described themselves as feeling like a rubbish tip, and then she wrote the text, which later was put onto acetate, and then in the dark room, was print, uh, in between sessions, I printed that onto the image, brought it back to the session, and again, it's the thing of how do I make them understand this was made for someone who wanted really to supply the metaphor and for me to make the images. So he talked about pain as meaning you were rotten from the core and no one could see it. And then eventually it worked its way to the surface and then people could see it. So it's almost like a sort of process. But he selected which of the many photographs of rotten apples we produced was the one that was actually shown. And then this was with someone who actually was quite resistant to taking part in that collaborative process but eventually, when he did, he actually cut off this sort of head bath part at the end and sort of separated it and was saying that it was the, he felt it was the fact that it was his mind and his consciousness was overwhelmed with pain as well as his body. And what I wanted to say a little bit about was why, why the photograph? Because any other medium probably could have shifted that discussion in the consulting room but I think the photograph in particular is particularly apposite for this. Um, it goes back maybe to Joe Spence, um, whose sort of seminal work in the 1980s showed how she could use the camera as a way of regaining a sense of control and regaining a sense over her own illness when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And this was one of the sentences she had, and although medicine has changed very much since then, there is still a sense of handing over your body to be healed, so it's quite difficult to retain control over how it's seen. <coughs> I think the other thing is the distancing. Susan Sontag talks a lot about the dangers of aestheticising other people's experience, particularly in terms of war and the amount of, sort of war images that proliferate um, the news. But I think in this context, actually the distance was really helpful for us, because the distance, having the pain... in represented in a photograph other than inside the self, I think allowed people to talk about experiences that were very difficult to talk about. And this is what one of the, um, the people who had actually chosen to have her arm photographed from self-harming actually said it was seeing the photograph um, had a sort of moment of recognition. I think there's also the fact that the photograph documents, we still think there's a link between authenticity and documentation in a photograph, even though we know that most photographs are being modulated, that we have digital photographs 
um, and digital technology to change them. But I think it's, um, there's still a link that we hang on to. And when Susan Sontag again talks about a fake painting falsifies the history of art, but a photograph falsifies reality. So we link it with some reality. And I think maybe the photograph is a way of not just making experience known, but a way of shaping experience. And I think there's also an ambiguity in visual images, but maybe more so with photographs. And the fact that we can project many readings onto an image, again, allows it to be a particularly useful medium in this context. And lastly, it has a materiality. I think in the clinic we're handing the photographs backwards and forwards, and the photographs have gone through a process of making with other chronic pain sufferers. I think in a way that validates them to both the clinicians and to the patients. In a recent paper on um, photographs and eliciting narrative, uh, Alan Radley said, the point here is that photographs gained their meaning from the act that produced them, that they were not meaningful only in the sense of their pictured content. And I think maybe that's also very relevant for us. So I'm going to move on to say a little bit about the recent project, Face to Face. And Face to Face was a collaboration between myself as an artist and facial pain specialist, Professor Joanna Zakshevska, and patients and clinicians from University College London Hospitals. And this project focused on facial as opposed to musculoskeletal pain. And the thing with facial pain is it has all the difficulties associated with musculoskeletal pain, but it has a difficult, additional difficulties associated with the face. Do you want some water? There's some water down here. Okay, if you do, just come and grab it. Um, but I think that the face does have particular things associated with it, largely because we use our face for a lot of social functioning. So for most of us, we might go out for a cup of coffee and not think about it. But if you have facial pain, having a cup of coffee can start off the, the pain, as considered the act of kissing, like the two lovers in the background, or having a very cold, ice-cold drink, or biting into sort of fresh fruit. And very briefly, the face-to-face has um, several strands to it, and I'm just going to run through them quickly until we get to the making photographs. Because um, I think, that, again, there were the workshops for patients and clinicians to attend together, and these were at the National Portrait Gallery and at the Education Centre. There was a film which sort of explored narratives of pain and the intersects and the disconnects between clinician and patient perspectives, and I'm now actually in the process of developing a new film from the current research. But again, the main strand of this project was co-creating images of pain with facial pain sufferers. And again, this was actually with someone who um, took me round a building. We found crumbling buildings, which we photographed, <coughs> took them back to the session, and then she put the teeth across them, and we re-photographed them. So there's lots of sort of re-photographing and layering. And again, another way, she, she tore the newspaper apart, and the this theme of medication came up once again. Um, so a lot of the themes repeat themselves. But the significant difference between the earlier perceptions of pain and face-to-face was at this time I worked with people at three points in their treatment journey. It was before treatment, during it, and afterwards. And so there was a sense of the arc of their experience and their journey through treatment or management. And it meant that the images were able to reflect changes they'd made in their perceptions of pain. For example... This is um, an image of a strawberry that was made with someone um, waiting for surgery for trigeminuralgia, which is one of the few facial pain conditions which can be cured through surgery. And here you can see the knife sort of piercing the skin of the strawberry. And there it's almost, it's, it's a metaphor for her pain. 
but it's also at the same time maybe a metaphor for the surgeon's knife as a sort of process of healing. So there's still an ambiguity there. And then she asked me to photograph her in the hospital and of the environment in the hospital while she was having surgery. And then again, she's used the strawberry as, a, as a, the same icon, but it's now been transformed with all the sort of icons of identity relating to illness. And they've been encased and sealed within a ball instead of her being encased and sealed. And she's able to let that go. And there are a couple of other examples, again, of people before their treatment where he felt he needed to ask for other people's help all the time. Post-surgery, he felt much more in control and able to go back to um, all the things he enjoyed. And again, this was more related to fear and the fear of an, another trigeminal neuralgia attack and then filling the sense of the hospital actually with flowers from her own garden. So again, having some more sense of control over it. But I think it was also important to remember that it didn't go from high intensity to low intensity with everyone. And with some people, it really spiralled, the images spiralled around issues associated with their experience of pain. And this particular sufferer said that she, she described herself as being like a shadow sandwich, which was a fairly challenging um, metaphor to give a visual form to. But she turned up with some bread, which she had propagated in her room, which had become really, really mouldy bread. So again, the sense of sort of a decomposing process, almost like some sort of rocky landscape. And then we ended up, this is our final image, where we managed to try and integrate the shadow onto it. And I think the shadow itself can carry both positive and negative meaning. It inhabits a sort of realm of obscurity, of concealment. It's an absence of light or visibility. And it has relationship to an object other than itself, rather than being a tangible object itself. So it's very elusive um, and maybe sort of eludes our grasp, which makes it the perfect metaphor for pain. And actually, this shadow image has been chosen frequently by other patients who... Um, look to them and find them relevant to their own experience. And then the last strand of the project, which really relates to what we're thinking about here, which is maybe about how photographs can generate more language, is we took a selection of the images that were co-created <coughs> from this project and from the Perceptions of Pain project, and we've made them into a pack of sort of 54 cards, um, which are being piloted at the moment. They've been laminated to make them sort of easier to handle. Um, I can show you the sort of rough size of them and you can have a look afterwards if you want to um, but we've actually got 10 clinicians from different specialities within the pain management teams at UCH have offered to be um, have their consultations video recorded and both they and their patients have agreed and we did one round of normal baseline consultations as normal and a second round where patients were given this box of cards to look through the images 20 minutes before their consultation they look through them and pick out any that actually resonate for them and then they're given the option to take those into their consultation and use them as a trigger to talk about their pain if they want to. And these, and these are all filmed, and then they were asked to fill in post-consultation questionnaires. And I think these evaluation forms and the video recordings and transcriptions make up a unique body of material, which we're lucky enough to have a fantastic team to analyse from their different perspectives. So this just gives you a sense of the range of perspectives and I think maybe this is where we return to language, because you can see we've got um, Professor Elena Semenow, who's a, a linguist, and she has already managed to identify, through a very preliminary analysis so far, some fascinating features of the way that the photographs seem to have actually changed language. So I think the last thing I'd like to do is to just run through a few of the planes in which I think the images are impacting on language. 
And I think the first, almost the first plane was actually going right back to the first project, and it's actually in the workshops between myself and the people with pain as we're working on making the images. Um, this was with someone who found it, she found it very difficult to describe her pain, and in the end she asked me to bring in objects for good days or objects for bad days, and she selected from these possible objects. And, then she, and we photographed them. And then she started using the camera herself and going home and bringing back selections of images. But the images that she brought back were always of two, two animals. So there'd be two cats, two rabbits, two dogs, two guinea pigs. And here you can see the two rabbits. And it turned out in about the third session that actually she was a twin. And she described how she always felt her twin's pain, but her twin didn't feel her pain. And I think that discussion might not have emerged without the image as a sort of trigger. I think another way in which the another plane in which it happens was also when the when the people who made the images take those to their treating <laughs> clinicians or their families. With this one, it's, just, it's the image of the rubbish dump, um, which I printed. But then the person I was working with brought in the medication bottles, threw them across the image, and we re-photographed it. And this was one of a selection of images she took into her own um, pain specialist, Charles Piper, and he was asking her about her pain. And she was describing it in this way. Again, she was talking about the mounds of rubbish and how eventually she thought it was all settled and then suddenly someone would throw some uh, medication at her and it would change and it would all feel unsettled again. And he sort of said, you have abdominal pain, but you're not talking about your abdomen. Um, and she said, no, this is what I want to talk about. So I think it allows people to direct the conversation to where they need it to go. I think there's also, when other people are reviewing the images that they haven't made... But that in, during part of the study in the, in the clinic with other pain specialists, it seemed to be that the language was more specific, it was more detailed, it was less generic. So you got less about the, sort of, the level of intensity, but you more, got more about sort of detailed things about the stabbing or feeling embarrassed or pebbles under the feet. So it was more about the sort of people's own details and the sort of social context in, in which they lived their pain. And then I think lastly, in the analysis that Elena has um, very kindly begun to, to work on, she's using a software called Wometrics, and she's trying to explore what kind of language happens when using the cards. So she's trying to, at the moment, identify specific words and specific domain areas which seem to appear more in the with image group than the without image group. So she's come up with these, and then she's taken out the domains that are obviously going to come up more often with the cards, like sort of photographs or paper or card... Um, and what she's been left with is these are the sort of um, domains that seem to get talked about in much more detail, much more frequently when the images are present. And then what's also interesting, that I think there's a sense of feels like, feels which suggests a sort of much more metaphoric language creeping in and more discussion um, of the emotions and maybe the impact on people's life as much as the sort of quality of the pain. And there's also the pronoun. That, I think that was the one that was the most sort of evident change that she found is that many more pronouns of I, which suggests that maybe it allows people to have more control over what is talked about in that part of the consultation, more, perhaps more empowerment. But she's carrying on the analysis, um, looking at it in more detail. So to conclude, I'd like to propose that this method of using visual images as a communication aid and as a means of eliciting significant patient narrative, can work as a complement rather than an alternative to existing measures. And I would argue that there is a real and practical value in borrowing processes and methodologies from the arts and the humanities 
to support current multidisciplinary practices for the assessment and management of chronic pain. And I would suggest that integrating practices of art and medicine can expand and enhance both. is not a lot of talking and I want to also show you uh, what I've been doing. I'm going to be drawing on my work with dying migrants in English cities and show you examples of what I'm calling empirical performance and poetics. And it's a way of really storing. Um, Deborah's just talked about some of the theoretical ideas around pain that it can't be communicated. And I want to... I'm not sure about that, so I want to story that and to think about that. But I also want to bring something in of the researchers' experiences of working, for me, with diasporic pain, disability, death and loss. By way of context, the work I'm going to be talking about today comes out of a recent British Academy Fellowship project on social pain called Case Stories. And in shorthand, social pain and suffering are terms used in the neurosciences, palliative or end-of-life care, and in the social sciences. And how I'm using social pain is to refer to the pain, the injury and the hurt caused by social injustice, um, inequality and dispossession. So I'm really interested in what happens between the social and the biochemical as social scientists, we're very good at sort of theorising social experiences, but not really in terms of thinking about how biochemistry can affect questions of identity as well. So for me, what can characterise the chronopolitics of these experiences is that they can entail the elongation, the dulling, the numbing or deferral of sensation. They're chronic conditions in the sense that they can be drawn out and they wait. And what's interesting in terms of particularly working with dying migrants um, is seeing how biochemistry can sometimes unleash different experiences, can sometimes provide a a buffer against normativity. So my challenge in this work has been how to trace and evoke the biopsychosocial experiences that can be lacking in a referent or a name, can be withdrawn from the now, but can exist as sort of tacit embodied knowledge and experiences. So in my work in ethnographic work and using narrative interviews and oral history, I've been working in hospices, hospitals and homes for nearly two decades now, and I feel that I've been witnessing the manifestations and consequences of social pain in the most intimate and sensual terms at the migrant deathbed. I've also seen how the cultural and the biological can sometimes overwrite and variably loosen their hold over one another, producing novel effects and strange temporalities. The trauma of the concentration or refugee camp can come back in hallucinations. There's a condition called terminal restlessness, where... um, people can get agitated and they can also hallucinate and it's been interesting that doctors and nurses have been witnessing 
experiences and trauma that people have never talked about returning in hallucinations. And terminal restlessness can be caused by the toxins that build up because of disease, or they can be a side effect of some of the drugs that are used to control symptoms. So in terms of the end of life, I've been witnessing <coughs> these, these conditions and also how second languages or immediate bearings can be lost. When are you from, rather than where are you from, become the really pertinent questions that are asked of diasporic subjects at these times. So I want to, what I've been working with is really trying to put aside some of the constraints of sociology. And I've been following Arthur Frank's um, injunction, really, to think with rather than just about stories. So um, I'm going to show you some of the work that I've been doing with stories, and this is a story about temporal otherness. No, it's the other one, sorry. 2.08 p.m., and she is learning another language. Metastases, ascites, palliative care. She didn't ask how long, but someone, somewhere in the room said, I'm sorry. They did say that, didn't they? Mostly we've prodded and poked. Sometimes we've listened to her in size or looked right through her. Come on in, Mrs. Das. There's nothing to worry about, a radiographer said. The woman stands for a while in awed silence in front of the white rotunda. With a persuading hand, she sits and then lies back on the platform, terrified. She allows herself to be swallowed feet first. She remembers her child waking from a bad dream 40 years ago. Mama, he whispered, I hate the night. I want to get a big ladder, climb to the top and break the bone. She stroked his small face and soothed him, allowing the slow velvet of his earlobe to slip back and forth between her fingers. And the eerie beauty of the chamber. The woman listens to her breathing. She imagines the magnet as a supreme being watching over her. Out of nowhere, a downpour, buzzing, hammering, tolling. It backs off, then it regroups. Snapping loudly around her like a pack of rabid dogs. The air thins. The woman's skin tightens. Her temperature soars and dives. Her heart races, her stomach churns. The world wobbles. Let's leave the light on in the hallway, she said later that night. On a screen, we peer at the woman in cross-sections, and whichever way we look, 
we cannot foresee the dark magic that plagues our neurology have made of her. How these two lovers will unzip and play with what has been mixed up and melted. She leaves us bit by bit. She is here and she is there. Sometimes calling out to her dead. Without her prayer beats, her fingers still work the ghostly mala as if she is praying. It's a fleshy devotion emptied of thought. We cannot reach her. Is it language? Imagination? Biochemistry that keeps us ashamed? Her last words to her daughter come freewheeling out of a morphine haze. She is restless, more restless than she was those five decades before. <coughs> Get the tickets and the passports. One tactic that I've been working with in using art and performance is to try and put into play and to show the multiple times and figurations of otherness, including temporal otherness. And this is all from the position, the ambivalent position of another researching other others. So I've wanted to try and bring matters of non-linear time and discontinuities of space to think about ideas about pain and how it is inscribed into and meets otherness in the body in very diverse singularities. And I've in, because I work in palliative care, a lot of my work in terms of producing this, um, you can see some of this, uh, uh, the project for the, where some of this work is on is called Case Stories, so casestories.org if you want to have a look at some of the, the other work I've been doing, um, which includes poetry and art. But more recently, as you'll see with both of these um, two short clips that I'm going to show, I've been experimenting with inserting a third figure into the dyadic relationships that often dominate at different stages of research. So you're a researcher working often with in my case, other people's narratives in uh, oral history. And so I'm a bit fed up uh, about mm -hmm. the neoliberal trembling in front of difference. I've just sort of had enough of it. So I've been experimenting with what happens if you actually hurl yourself, you stop pretending to be um, somehow removed from other people's stories, because you never are, particularly in qualitative research. So what I've been trying to do is to think about actually putting myself more firmly in that really precarious and dangerous line. So in both of those pieces, I've inserted parts of my own biography um, 
and in, you'll see that in the second line. So in, in that piece, Magnetic Resonance, um, were the last words my mother spoke to me, uh, which were get the tickets and the passports. And in the next piece that I'll show, Turf, were my, one, one, some of my son's first words, ball. So um, these are my first steps, really, into thinking more directly about what the social psychologist Margie Weatherall has called effective practices. For someone working with post-colonial and feminist scholarship, it's very difficult working in the field of medicine, particularly and medical sociology, which is so painfully ethnocentric. So I've been really heartened by Margie Weatherall's sort of drawing attention to cultural absolutism. In a critique of um, a theorist called Sylvan Tompkins, who's done a lot of work on what's called basic emotions, Margie's pointed out how Tompkins' claims assume, and this is a quote, that bodies always and everywhere speak just English, since it is English language terms that de define and parse the emotion categories assumed to be innately programmed. So in this next short piece, um, I should say the first piece was performed beautifully by Sasha Frost, and this next piece is performed by Ludwig Bonning. And they were both, I wrote them for the Medicine Unboxed conference. They were first performed only a, a little while ago in November. And so what I've also tried to do there, by using this fictive kinning, by inserting, intervening my own biography into those other people's stories, is not only to interrupt the normative and bloodlines of reproductive time, but also a device of making palpable the effective and material residues and confusions of research. I can only speak for myself, but in working with other people's stories, I think we always risk confusing our experiences with their experiences. There's also the ongoing effectiveness of empirical materials and the ghosts of our research participants that I carry with me long after a research project or after that paper or book has been published. On these latter points, I found the work of the queer theorist Elizabeth Freeman especially helpful. So in her book, Time Binds, which is a really good book, she urges us to think, and she makes a very powerful argument of why we should think about social differences as lived through differences of time, as temporal differences. So th this is the ideas that I've been playing with, really. So Turf is from an interview that I did with a dying Ghanaian refugee in South London who I've called Ibrahim. And at the time when I interviewed him, Ibrahim had a 16-month-old son. And his pain was very out of control. He'd been brought in the hospice, into the hospice for symptom control. And when I went back to listen to the, to the tape of the interview, you could hear in that tape the sort of the noises of his syringe driver, his laboured breathing. You know, his pain really filled up the whole interview. And I actually haven't found a good transcription notation to donate, to denotate pain. But he was very poor as well. The hospice social workers had negotiated um, a small uh, allowance to pay his rent and to ease his financial burdens. He had two older children also in Ghana, and he was really worried about what would happen to them after he died and he couldn't send back his remittances. They were a real lifeline. But he also had a problem that he was very worried about, about what would happen to his 16-month-old son. 
And he was worried particularly that if he died without his father in this country, and in his words, that his son would just melt away into this society. So he'd come up with this inventive plan, which was he wanted to be buried in Ghana. And his idea was that if he was buried in Ghana, as he said, his son could one day go back there and he'd have a link to the place. So uh, Ibrahim is somebody whose story I never felt that I did justice to, but I felt I understood it a bit more a couple of years later when I had my own son. So in turf, this piece, I use crossing and football to show the precarious workings of -of end-of-life wishes as speech acts and the embodiedness of metaphor. The piece is my fantasy about Ibrahim's son, who would be in his sort of late teens or early 20s now. And that over the past years, I've often found myself wondering about Ibrahim's son, wondering about if the family ever managed to get his body back home. Because I was doing ethnography in the hospice, I managed to follow them for a little while. And they just didn't have the money to send Ibrahim's body back home at that time. But I really don't know how that story ended. So in this piece, I've been working across multiple differences. So working between fact and fiction, but also things I know nothing about. Cultural difference, but also football. South East London street vernacular. And in the performances, the losses slide between the football match, what UNESCO calls intangible cultural heritage, and the losses of urban regeneration in that part of South East London on the Aylesbury estate. In the performance, you hear the word cessez-les-lames, which is used among the Anlo-Enwe people of southeastern Ghana. It's a basic perception verb that refers to both sense knowledge and to sensations. It's the sensing of sense, in other words. It can be used to connect the tingling of skin, hearing, pain, smell, sexual arousal, intuition, kinesthetics and balance. One translation of Cecile Lame from the anthropologist Catherine Lynn Gertz is feel, feel at flesh inside. I also just want to say thank you to my son, Zach, for helping me in some of the cultural translations of around football for this. <laughs> no, no, we didn't lose the game, man. We just ran out of time, you get me? I think they dirty all the way. Kicked us to pieces. Tackle studs up, scrappy goals and set pieces. They owned us. Still dreaming of Wendy though. Looking to tax Sterling's crown and getting out with Mom. Gonna take on one last fuck you level one around the estate. Matt Black LBRA. Save. Saw my last week at Edinburgh nearly cried. <coughs> on the pitch, I'm more like Neymar. Learned the hardware of crossing you know what I'm saying? When you're squatting through balls, you've got to take one look up and that's it. Keep your eyes on the ball, pray for it, and deliver it as safe as you can. We not to grab screaming at you like a maniac. Front post! Front post! All the Cubans say about pleading with all these got. The boys think they know you. I mean, they've got your back, but... Maybe something changed this time. Maybe you're not that you again. I mean, you don't know, they don't know. So it's all about areas, not people. Get me? 
forget iTunes and YouTube and all that. This is real time. This is it. Wait, imagine, you're not saying it. Still with your front foot. I don't know if you're 60, so I don't know if you're going to eat or kill the bull. The new man's drag back. The knees laid side on. Showing them boys where you want them. That's muscle poetry and chemistry. <coughs> Means feel. Feel the flesh inside. You get me? Goes to every move, dream, full breath, every game you've ever played, bone, flesh, turf, everything coming together. The time's running out, so you've got to go with it and dash. You keep it real, you get me. Don't make promises you can't keep, because no matter what you know in here and in here, no matter how hard you train, you don't know how this is going to end. I mean, that all's your memoir, but you don't get to write the ending. Afterwards, the dressing room's fucking dead. Coaches testiculating, proper vets milling. We see this shit anyway, no one can hear him. Nothing to say. Nothing. Just drowning in the pain and stink of Frank Shimpa's cocoa butter and sweat. We were gonna freeze out of state and wait for the last man. Roll out tight, you get me? Coming back to the drum, and there's still dead flowers and candles on the wall. Where are you? What the fuck? It was one of these brain dead cliches. I don't extra from Top Boy, Shank, the next guest of it, fucking tourists. Every day something changes right here, you know what I'm saying? Someone or something's blotted out. My old man didn't want to end up here, no. When we saved up for years, kept them in a pot until we could save up enough money to get back to the old country. Stupid Red couldn't go back when he was alive, though, could he? Thought the feds were going to kill him or something. Before he passed, he told Mark to bury him there, didn't he? Whatever, man. Thought he could leave me like, there's my dad and all that. I want my son. Not just to melt away into this society. Should have kept him on the ice, cranks up the respect of those Africans. Some dad bomb can snatch the record for that though. Four years and more, no lie, cost thousands. Took my years for this shit just to pay for the funeral. Stress about posters, beer, the generators, the cameraman, and all the time he's over there, all we get is give me, give me, give me. It's a fucking respect. Door no return. He's not there though, is he, with the black stars? He's in Burgess Park, keeping it local. Told me I had to drop you there before I could even walk. First word I said was bull. That's where we ain't keep. Just feeling in there and in here. Take the walk down there, show him what I've got. Showing my jewels and tricks. Running so fast that I can't feel nothing, only my heart coming out of my fucking mouth, speaking fast.
to read a handful of poems and then I might not manage to stand up but I might retreat to my chair to just then talk a little bit about writing poetry and pain. Um, The first poem is the one that was referred to uh, called Crone Heroine. Um, Just because you can't see it, if you were reading it, Crone is spelt like Crohn's disease, not an old Crohn. And although, of course, there's a play on that as well. And heroin, likewise, is spelt heroin with an E. And again, it's a play on heroin. Both meanings of the one. Okay. And this poem was actually written a long, long time ago. And it, I think it shows. It's an early poem. And um, a late, later, it was... I worked on it with Richard Crow. Um, it became the backdrop to a video that he did with Desperate Optimists. Um, okay. Crone Heroin. The bed had a ramp. A sit-up-and-take-notice-of-you-bed with a plastic undersheet to catch any slip-ups. The sheets were creased with brownish streaks, dried blood. They weren't for changing. The bed leaked fluids it didn't have. In the middle of the night, I sat up, bolt upright and naked, and inquired, Are there mosquitoes here? What, do you think you're at the seaside? the nurse retorted. The itching went on all night, and then at six, everyone woke up, and I conked out. My bed floated in the sea, the pain was on the end of a telephone line, and I could hear it faintly in the distance. The bed blew up into a lilo, and I floated into the Mediterranean, Middle Earth between the ephemeral and the divine. Seaweed garlanded my arms and tangled with the telephone wires. I wasn't completely cut off. I floated out of my body, looking down from the sea clouds on the husk, with its dented metal casing and crumpled mesh. Sparklers were shooting out, fizzing and crackling, and I heard in Kuwait shouting, far away. After Give Me High Five, I rejoined the lilo that blew up into an airship, and I was tripping on the bed in an air bubble. At first it hit me as a vacuum. The sticky electricity stopped crackling in my head, and my blood tamed. And then I felt heat, real heat, heat that claws black to ash, cools lava to pumice stone, lolling froth and burning. And I knew there must be air, though there was nothing to breathe but hot froth, stained sheets with frothing magma surging up, retching up from the earth's bowels, where mud and soot settle, and charcoal sediments. It left fossils in the mould, like crow's feet in bark and the whitened bone of empty sockets. 
to Sonnets on Pain. The point of pain. The master gatekeeper of the captive mind executes both thought and generosity. It is the body's turbine and blades that grind, the marker mapping out anatomy, nerve fibres, spasmic sinews, joints, inchoate aches that heighten consciousness of the whole, and qualities of character delineate, visceral, lily-livered, gutless, galled. Exact and exacting in its demands, it aims at dominion over mind and flesh, and organs it skews and stops, countered with mere half-moons, to be endured, gone through, overcome. Once pains rumbled, reduced to a rump, transcended through fellow feeling, its empire is ended. And this one's called Pain's Universe, and it has an epigram. God is the indwelling and not the transient cause of things. It's a quote from Spinoza's Ethics. Recalling an uninhabited place that no vein or membrane, organ or limb defines, or being a part of can embrace, pain spreads without a centre or a rim, like the nothingness that awes a child's mind runs over the bounded universe of time and all that is in it and beyond, unconfined by the eye that cannot countenance or frame what cause lies behind God or that there's none. But suppose Spinoza's right and God is everywhere, in everyone, then however pressing, pain can't set us apart. For Baruch, the blessed, shows us another way of seeing in the sheer boundlessness of space that we're not alone. Um, And then I'll just read um, a couple more, um, which I I thought started off being about pain, but then they went somewhere else. Toast. Wanting the bronze tinge of cinnamon, the porous surface letting in the butter that slips through, seeps and moistens, I grab at the drying bread under the grill and get baked hand with crisp red-brown skin, lashings of screaming and a thick layer of savlon cream and tight raw feeling of being ironed. Dr. Marcus bribes me with a sweet to tear the stuck galls off, and underneath, the dried lands of Roileo and the Jordan Valley. And this poem, which is a prose poem I wrote, is the only thing, I'm afraid, that came out poetically for me from the Communicating Pain workshop. Um, and as you able to tell, it's a, in a bit of dialogue with uh, one of the practitioners at the workshop. It's called If Not For This. The man introduced himself as an Alexander practitioner of the art, of aligning the body as perfectly as it once was before contorted with pain. Me is me, he said. There is the me before pain, outside of pain. You know this. 
We had to scrape around inside ourselves to find any point of contact with the absurdist notion of choice, even more with the idea we might exist in a free republic outside the empire of pain. And anyway, some of us were proud to have learned hypersensitivity from the brawl and squall of it. Who would we be if not for this? Where would we be without the resilience of our scars, our terrors, our reason? Okay. Do you mind if I sit down for the rest? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know whether that's communicated pain or not. Um, but that, I think, is not my purpose or understanding of writing. Um, I kind of question the premise of the idea of communicating pain as such, um, so that the other, or the reader, or the audience feels it. I've no desire for you to actually experience my pain <laughs> in that sense. And I don't think really... That is quite the purpose of, of, of art. Um, the second thing I'd say is, it is about intentionality and poetry. Um, I can't speak for other art forms, really, but if my intentionality starts as writing about this experience or pain and a line comes, the poem resists it. And often subverts this intention. So you go on the skids of language, you don't actually know where you're going, and you don't know where you're going to end up. Um, so I think, and often, if you're writing about something else, in fact, I would say when I'm, mainly when I'm writing about completely other things that I'm not aware about thinking about pain, it comes in, in those through the back door. So I don't think it's like a straightforward way in which there's a link between your pain and, and in the workshop all the artists were, we were chronic pain sufferers of, of, of enormous variety um, I don't think the main way in which the art comes out is as denoting pain it's not, I think, that straightforward notion of denotation um, but it may show the mental process of moving from pain to somewhere else. In other words, you escaping pain into language and turning also damage from pain <coughs> into some kind of creative act. Uh, for me, retrieval or resistance or defiance are all sort of in there. Um, transcendence through the image or breath or jumps or the cut or the music or the conjunction of the disjuncture between <coughs> so the poem transforms the originating impulse into something else or at least I hope it does uh, into some kind of poetic form and so it can't be reduced to its original impulse or even to its surface <coughs> Um, if I can give just an example from the poems I've read the last one 
started off from a pain, communicating pain workshop and actually went somewhere, I think, became a political poem. It wasn't my intent, but it became... It's not really about pain. It's about defeating the empire. So um, I think, again, it, this is a more complicated thing that if poetry or any art form is to transform you and the material and hopefully have some effect on the reader or audience then you have to, in a way, let it do its work, its transformative work. Um, the second thing I'd like to say is about pain and language in particular. We all live within a culture and a shared language, and that is the way that frames and articulates and shapes our understanding of pain and illness base organs of the body, base functions of the body, and also how we express images of health. And so, I mean, the, the summit in particular, the summit, the point of pain, directly addresses the language in which pain, and it's a very strong and inherited tradition in both West and East, I mean, the terms and understandings in acupuncture are like the metaphors in Shakespeare of the body, of the organs, of the association of bodily parts and bodily functions with a hierarchy of base and higher functions. And the base functions, and the when the disease is faced, in the Western tradition, the moral failings are embodied in our language, they're not innocuous terms. And I wrote it down, it's so funny, there's so many echoes with Deborah's research, I couldn't believe it, because I hadn't, I hadn't heard Deborah's research, knew nothing about it. But I've written down, feeling rotten. <laughs> and that was her apple. That, um, the ones, feeling rotten, but also gutless, which for me is like, I've got a chronic disease of the bowel, so gutless, you know, is like one of them that I find particularly difficult, or um, spineless, lily-livered, okay, we don't use lily-livered anymore, but spineless, common concept of cowardice. These are terms which are loaded with notions of moral weakness, moral cowardice, bitterness. And so I, I want to, a kind of, in my poetry, I, I mean, I don't know if it's intentionality, but looking back, that's one of the things that I found most difficult in terms of the medical practice that I've experienced in relation to chronic disease, uh, and much wider among friendships and in the society, that these connotations of, of disease. Um, and they're also not just and this is, again, something I think there's a real taboo in our society of discussing, not just terms of disgust, but they're also terms of self-disgust because the person suffering from the chronic disease is no, is no more immune from the general culture, and that's what we've inherited, so you often turn it against yourself. So these are also kind of, you know, the sense of failure and the sense of self-disgust are all embodied in the language that the chronic sufferer shares with the rest of society. 
Um, and I mean, just an example in the point of pain, you know, talked about the, the, the sort of notion of the empire of pain or the, 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 the dominion that it has is that it changes and destroys the self. It executes thought and generosity. That, to me, is one of the worst, the most difficult aspects of chronic pain. How it narrows you, how it reduces you to your body and your bodily functions and a battle with some other life force that's inside you. Now, against that, one of the, I suppose, strategies of, that poetry offers is humour, punning, some kind of sending up. So to countenance the indignity, to countenance the indignity, that whole aspect of, of, of mocking, um, whether it's the rumbling and the rump, the pain, the rump of pain, which is a reversal. Instead of it being my rump, it's the rump of pain. This is what, this is, these, these are, if you like, they are what language gives you, what, to enable you in the symbolic world, the imagined world and imaginative world of, of language and culture, to overturn, to challenge, to, to, even to laugh. And the last point I made is about pain and empathy. I think writing enables a point of contact with the other, with the reader, with the audience, who don't experience chronic pain. But everybody, every single person experiences pain of some kind linked to birth, Babyhood, falling over as a child, apart, you know, and so it goes on. Apart from psychic pain, which unfortunately we all have at various phases of our life, it's not as severe or persistent, but you can use that as the point of contact. You can refuse the isolation. And in Pain's Universe, for example, it works in a way by addressing what's a widespread childhood experience of when we try and think of the universe. Our first notions, cosmological notions about nothingness and God, is God an answer? Is there a bound, is that just another boundary and what's beyond? And that idea of when your mind races and you, you stay up all night and figuratively that is one of the ways in which the poem chases its own tail and gets out of thinking about pain and it, it's off into the cosmos. What starts with pain, an image of the overflow of pain that can't be contained, it goes transported into a whole other place of cosmology. So that, and it's the, it's the poem that does that. It's not me. That, that, I don't start out thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know. The, the language, the skids of language... And the form took me there. And that enables me, I hope, to make some connection beyond myself. And that's what I feel that the poem can enable a mental process of being transporting away, of subverting and overriding pain in the process of writing. So for me, the poem is a performative act in overriding pain. 
both the writing and the public reading of it. And I think this is true of all art forms. Um, and it's as exploratory for the writer as for the reader or audience. And in that sense, I feel that there's an empathy of the poem and of the writing, which is then given back to me. There's an empathy through writing, through the poem itself and what it does and where it takes me, which is like an empathy back to the pain-suffering writer. And I prefer the concept of writing as empathy than as therapy. Because therapy, although it's a relationship with another, it's very private. Whereas writing, I think, is a relationship not only of the writer, the author, to the imagined world, but also then of the work, the imagined work, to an audience or to a public. Um, sorry, if I've got one minute left. Um, I just wanted to say that the last point, which is about the transition, if you like, from there, from pain to politics, I suppose. Um, Toast partly sends up, in terms like the, the Marks and Spencer's advert about, you know, this excessive consumption, this gorgeous, you know melted butter and roast meat and sex and everything in excess to when people are actually roasted alive. And that also helps to decenter the self. Writing as an act of empathy which goes beyond the writer and their pain or their experience to connect to a much wider world. Um... And I suppose the last poem, for me, is really, I think, where there's um, a direction in writing, which is to make a connection, not forced, not starting out... I didn't start out to write a political poem or to make a point about imperialism. But if you stay true to the experience, you will connect with the worst experiences or the, the experiences that are very difficult for us to grapple and hold on to. And in that sense, I feel that, um, that there's a, the process of, 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 of writing with an empathy and trueness to the experience can make its connections across boundaries and across time and, and space. Um, so that, to me, make sharing those journeys, if you like, or those transitions that I I find my I find writing enables me to make. Also, I think is is something that I would want to share with the public or an audience more than you just feeling my pain. Um, and I suppose it's an invitation to go on that kind of journey, which is, um, I think you end up in a different place. At least that's the hope.
Well, thank you for those fantastic presentations. We've got now about 15 minutes for questions, and I don't want to take any time from you guys to pose them. So um, I think there's a microphone that will be uh, passed on to you. We've got a question over there. Thank you. That was all fascinating. My question is for Deborah, if I might. Um, you referred to Susan Sontag and her reservations about aestheticizing the traumatic experiences of others. And in your work, you have obviously created amazing works of beauty. And I wondered whether that created any tension for you or for the people who had, were experiencing the pain um, when their what they were experiencing came across as these amazing pieces that are, you know, are beauty in themselves. I think you're right. That there is a tension. I think there's also a tension between what you almost want to do aesthetically as an artist and then what someone else who may also, the pain sufferer may also be another artist, will be wanting to do to also um, do justice to their experience. And there's always a, there is a tension there of how you manage to make that work together to produce an image but I think the the sort of drive underneath for both of us was to try to produce an image that communicated what they wanted it to communicate so actually those were maybe those are some of the more beautiful ones I think possibly they're the more simpler ones because we made hundreds and hundreds of images and then with each person we selected them down to about, about six or eight that they thought came closest to saying what they wanted them to say or just I mean, listening to what you were saying, when even not necessarily saying it, but they're having evoking something that they wanted to evoke about their experience that, that may be difficult to put into words. Um, so I suppose with the selection, it might have been we ended up with ones that were more beautiful. But if that, if that shifts you away from the intensity of the experience, then that is a, that's a possible concern, yeah. On the other hand, if that allows you to talk about it, then it can work for you. So, yeah, it's a good point. Any more questions? Yeah, we've got one over there. Hi there. Uh, this one is for Yasmin. I noted particularly the performance of the works was quite important. And I wondered whether there was, if you could speak about the place of listening in receiving that pain and in sociological research and communication in the work that you've done? That's a really good question. Um, I think one of the things that, that worries me a lot, I think, is how research is very increasingly sort of rationalised. And, uh, you know, so you have your three-year project, you then get the findings out, and the assumption is that then your relationship with those materials ends there. And I think, especially when you're working with stories, m maybe not especially but you have an ongoing relationship with those stories and so your listening also changes as you change and the, so for me I think it's um, De the philosopher Derrida has this really uh, nice idea about ethics as well and, and Gayathri Spivak actually has this notion of ethical responsibility as two temporalities so the responding to the, what she calls the ungraspable call of the other and a setting to work you know, and I, so I think I'm continually working with those two different tensions. So an open-ended 
relationship of listening, but also realising that those things about producing materials, working to deadlines are also really important. So I think it's, it is a, it's, it's never a perfect relationship. But I think the thing about working with stories is that with sociological analysis particularly, it kind of assumes that the object, the story, stays still. You know, so you have your analysis and that's it. And for me, I've just been finding completely the opposite. So, and I was just going to say also, not necessarily questions. If anybody has any comments or anything, I'd be really interested to hear what you have to say. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's very, very difficult to communicate pain. In, because we've only got words, in fact, to communicate it. And you know, I mean, I've been going to the physiotherapist, and the physiotherapist says, "How do you feel the pain from five, five, <laughs> very painful to one, hardly any pain?" Now I can say hardly any pain, but he doesn't know. He can't feel it because he you know, he doesn't have my pain. Uh, he can only do these numbers, and I find it's very restricting. Um, I find. Uh, uh, to be able to communicate how much pain I've got to another person who doesn't have that pain. Uh, and I don't know how, how one gets over it. He does it by numbers. It's just five you know, to one. I don't know if there's any other way, but I, I, I think it's very difficult. We're so restricted by words, and uh, one by words, and the other person just can't feel your pain because they haven't got it. But I have, and... No, and, and the only way they can do, he can do it is by numbers. And I wonder if you've got any comments about that. Well, I, I suppose that it, that was one of the driving forces be, behind making the images, is that, as they're saying, that like the pain equals evil. Where would you put that on a scale of one to ten? And you might feel one number on one day and a different number on another day. And as you say, it might mean something completely different to the listener. So listening to both of you and watching, I was thinking it's almost it's in the space between something. It's almost like in, in poetry um, allows there to be a space sort of between the words or beyond the words. So it's not a literal translation where maybe never directly literally translate pain but there's having an open enough space or in your stories or in your, your the, the narrative you were talking about where almost you were putting your part of your story into someone else's story that somehow if there's a space in whatever setting it is where we can weave those together so we share some sort of understanding and I completely share your opinion personally in a chronic situation or complex situation I don't think a number does it um, but I think so that's why we're exploring so many other mediums I think I think there's another thing about I mean, I think there's a particular problem about quantifying the idea of quantifying pain. I mean, because it also sets up a hierarchy, because like there's the king of pain, which is, you know, number 10 or whatever. It's just absurd. And the problem is that we have, unfortunately, a dominant quantifying driven kind of system, which is to do with the way neoliberalism has, in a way, colonised every, every area of life and almost every language we have. And it's, very, it's particularly damaging, I think, in, when we're talking about health and, and, and pain and illness. Because it, uh, not only because of the subjective thing, but I think the drift of both our arguments, in a way, is that you... We are not all trapped in and totally isolated from. If we were, then pain has won. I mean, it's like super triumphant. 
There are ways, but it's only through a whole range of methodologies and approaches and art forms and so on that you can begin to talk about the quality of, our, of life and, and fear and, and shame and all the things which are linked to and surround and make pain more difficult to bear or cope with or challenge. And so I think it's the... You have to resist that and try and get your doctor to listen or your physiotherapist to listen. I think it was somebody in the audience who talked about listening. One of the key things in our society that's missing is... We've got loads and loads of people writing poetry, for example, with hardly any audience. I mean, it's, you know, the, the importance of listening and us... I mean, the quality of listening as well is part of what... I mean, I think the new approaches in, in complementary medicine and in health are, are, are trying to do. I would say draw your pain or write a poem, maybe take it to your physician... Okay, we've got a few more questions from back. I I think there are three of us who have questions. I'll be as quick as I can. Um, I'm wondering, I'm particularly interested in the last speaker's uh, thoughts on this, how the chronic pain sufferer, sufferer can find a way of transcending that sort of self-condemnation, the fact that their pain restricts them to, to the body um, and that it becomes a kind of theme, how they can transcend that sense of alienation, shame, failure in order to connect to their loved ones. <laughs> That's a small question. <laughs> um, I can only... I, can, I think it's the same... I think from from just from the perspective of writing as a poet, <coughs> I think one of the things that when it works, what you're doing is you're giving you're you're taking you're no longer the object of pain. You're claiming in a way partly if I can take my the first poem I I wrote, which in a way is the least um, finished. But it actually what it has in it is a shift from being the object of something. I mean, through this out-of-body experience, looking down on the wreck of the body, that actually, which was actually through a drug-induced thing, but of course it's an imaginative dream landscape which enabled that process was the, the beginning of becoming, if you like, a self-reflexive subject, looking at it. Sort of, the poem created a space which was semi-outside, so that although you were still connected on the telephone line to the pain, it never goes away, you were there, but it was distance, and it gave a space to imagine the post, the, the body as wrecked, the body as wreckage, the body as a burnt-out chassis, and yet reclaimable. How reclaimable? Because that body is also the one writing the poem. So it's, it, 
it's a process which creates the space for me, and I think more generally, to be turned from an object, victim, to, if you like, some kind of historically scarred survivor. And that, I think, is... Um, that, that's a big... For me, that's a big move. And I don't mean it just personally. I think that's true in all, in all processes. There are also therapeutic processes of survival from much... You know, from really big historical tragedies. It is that shift from just being the object of to, to reclaiming it, if only through language, but obviously also it points the way to reclaiming it through politics, through not being defeated or, or destroyed. Can we just very briefly sort of take the, the, the next two perhaps questions and then I'm sorry but we will have to draw to a close I'd like no, I'll be quick and then hand, hand the uh, um, microphone over. Um, it's a question to Yasmin Gunaratnan, but also, I hope, in positive comment on all three papers, but particularly with regard to what you were saying and showing, I was wondering, and I'm wondering this as, a, as an artist or as a poet, at what stage in your work did you find yourself wanting or needing or being impelled to... Um, go into that um, monologue form or that, that dialogue form and to have it acted out and was that a process that working within that, in an academic institution you, you found, found resistance to not within yourself but that's my question so I'll hand it on um, thanks and thanks to all the panelists and also um, yeah I was lucky enough to participate Sorry, just I, speak up I was lucky enough to participate in one of the communicating chronic pain workshops on photography with, with Deborah and, and, and Jude were there so I just want to thank the, but the panel and also the, the project because I think it's a really valuable one um, I suppose I think that I was wondering if you could comment a little more on the political the political aspects both of social pain but also of other types of pain I think that one of the important political aspect of this kind of work is simply that it reminds people, well it first states that chronic pain exists and, and makes that more believable to people and also that it, it reminds people of its existence and what people are going through but perhaps everyone is suffering certain amounts of pain and they're politically related and I wonder if you could say something about the relationships between the social, biological and, and um, uh, physical pains but to all the panel. Um, the, for, for me, this, I mean, there's lots of really interesting work on social pain. Um, what's interesting from the neuroscience research is that they're finding that social pain and physical pain share the same neurosubstrates. So that there is, you know, what's, that's really interesting to me from palliative care as well, who have this idea, who have this idea in the sort of 50s and 60s of total pain, of pain being physical, social, emotional, and psychological. Um, and I think I don't think they're two separate things, and that was partly what the performance was trying to show, to show both the mixing and the melding, but also how sometimes biochemistry there can be reversals where things that that hybridity can come undone. But I do think it's really interesting since I started the case stories project. I had a, an email a little uh, last week 
from somebody with fibromyalgia who'd, who'd read some of the stuff on social pain and uh, she was a migrant and she said, I really think there's something in this. And I also had um, some contact with somebody who is transitioning who also has um, fibromyalgia and had also been talking about the social pain that comes um, in transitioning. So I think that it can work across lots of different uh, experiences. Um, maybe, I mean, we can talk about this more because I'm very aware of time. Uh, in relation to the academic, uh, uh, being an academic and doing this sort of stuff, um, I'm really lucky to be where I am uh, in, at Goldsmiths. And they're very elastic. And for, for years, I had to keep my poetry and stuff quite quiet. And when I went to Goldsmiths, everybody's doing really wacky stuff. So I think but it really did help me to be in a department where that was encouraged. And I don't think it's the same everywhere by any means. I don't think there's any benefit, is there, in separating social pain, emotional pain, physical pain. I think they all influence each other. The processing influences each other. It's such a plastic system. And I think that's why there's interest in, in the work like David Biro is doing, suggesting that it's that sense of aversion and it can be expressed metaphorically, but there's no need to try and separate because yeah. then it validates one pain against another pain. It's all pain. It's very often associated with loss and many, many complex experiences. And I don't know what we achieve by trying to separate them. Yeah. I think what's particularly interesting about the talks that you've given today is how different forms uh, allow us to navigate these different dimensions differently and what kinds of strategies emerge that sort of relate us to pain. And on that note, I would like to thank uh, everybody for coming today and please join me in thanking the speakers for their wonderful contributions. <laughs>